Hello, and welcome back to Bucks Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture and analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Katya and Monica. How's it going, guys? It's going pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Impressive. I don't know. What do you want, man? Uh, I don't know. I guess for the listener, it's been two weeks, but like for uh, us, it's not been. We just did our 200th show, except for podcast time, time travel is weird. So I'm like enjoying reading people like congratulating us for for actually managing to do 200 of these, which has been like weirdly exciting. And thank you for all the lovely wishes, everybody. It's been really nice and sweet. So that was fun. But anyway, what have you guys been up to? The same things we do every week. (laughs) I mean, I feel feel like every time I ask this question, I I have have flashbacks to watching like Pinky in the Brain. brain. (laughs) Right. Well, because in these days of, I don't like pandemic, but also the world semi open but also it's not like my week it's just kind of the same week uh, things the world I have different might cocktails on the menu each week but you know it more or less stays <laughs> consistent I've, I've seen commercials and news things about oh we're, we're trying to open up the world we're just accepting that covid won so you know we're gonna we're gonna open up now and everything's gonna be fine and i'm like uh, yeah. Okay. I'm like, yeah. yeah i'm like i i i feel like i'm also just at the point where i'm like you guys can do that but like I'm introverted enough where I'm just kind of like, I have slippers and video games and I don't have to leave my house. So do I want to? Well, I do. I have to leave the house. My job requires me to be my, in front My of, job does not. I, everyone's going to have the realization that if I got groceries delivered, I could literally never leave my apartment. <sighs> That is a bad thing for me to realize. It's not good. Oh, for, oh, for, I, I was just being yeah. I was just being wistfully jealous. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I don't think living in 800 square feet for your the rest of your life is a wise thing for your brain. I feel like your brain does not want that. Yeah, I have too much shit. It wouldn't work for me. I have way too and much besides, time. it gives me an excuse to wear a fun thing, which is I say as I'm sewing some trousers, actually. And that's kind of related to our uh, episode topic this week, I believe. Wow. Oh. This was Monica. So so how, how does this work? <laughs> what is the topic? happening? <laughs> the topic, Mav, because I promised I would use this voice once is luxury. Which, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't understand the reference, please go read the blog uh, and watch the <laughs> SNL video up at the top. But we are talking about luxury fashion. This mm-hmm. week is my first week out of house and into a new job. And I bring that up because I actually brought my coworker on as our guest this week to help me talk about luxury fashion. Her name is Daniela Hernandez. And Daniela, I will let introduce herself, but we met because we install exhibitions with the FIDA Museum in Los Angeles together, specifically the sort of art of motion picture costume design and television costume design exhibits. And we've gotten to each other pretty well over the past few years. And we've gotten to talking angrily about the same parts of luxury (laughs) fashion that bother us. So I thought she would be perfect guest. But Danielle, if you want to introduce yourself and tell the listeners who you are, you care so much about luxury fashion. (laughs) You're saying hi, everyone. As Monica said, my name is Daniela Hernandez, and I'm here because I'm friends with Monica. And like her, I love fashion as art, as culture, and 
which is generally as a person who gets dressed every day. So I am from LA (laughs) (laughs) and I went to Hampshire College, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I studied uh, global fashion studies in undergrad. And it was kind of during that time period that I kind of started exploring fashion and what actually goes into it. What are all the things that we don't think about as the everyday person who buys clothes? And as Monica mentioned, we met at the Fitta Museum and Galleries in downtown Los Angeles, working on their 10th annual television and costume design exhibition, where I initially started my journey there three years prior, initially as a volunteer and now working there as part of their installation crew. Yeah. And as she mentioned, we've got to talking and kind of commiserating about all the mm-hmm. things that go on in the fashion industry, both positive and negative. And yeah. So that's kind of where my journey with fashion um, sort of began as an academic sense. And then on a personal level, of course, growing up and just like seeing all the things in magazines and taking my love for fashion from there on. Very that being cool. said, I wanted to start by asking my co-hosts, Av and Katia, how much you guys feel like you know about fashion, but more specifically, how luxury fashion is made and why we care about it and all of the sort of underbelly things that I tried to bring up a little bit in the blog. How much of that was new for you guys? I assumed, you know, magical fairies worked for Versace. Is that not true? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, it, it's weird. Like we were talking about before we came on the air. I know a little bit, like I worked as a glamour photographer for a while. So in one of my many jobs. So I probably know, you know, in some respect, I know a lot about how fashion works as, you know, visually and, you know, what looks good and how to light things to make them look good and how to do tricks. And I was a designer, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a fashion designer. I just, you know, I like nice looking clothes and stuff, but as far as the business end of it and no, I know nothing at all. And that's, (laughs) and other than, you know, I know how stores work and I know how, you know, capitalism works in general, but specific to the fashion industry not really anything for me i yeah i feel like i'm probably somewhere in between mav and then the two of you just because so i sew a lot and i've been sewing since i was pretty young and if you get into sewing particularly more advanced levels of sewing which i you know got more into in my 20s you end up i think learning a lot about like the labor aspect of the fashion industry and like different as kind of like a byproduct of learning about different construction methods or at least that was the case for me so i'm aware of a lot of what happens behind the scenes in terms of like fashion labor as well as a little bit about how brands kind of determine things but it's more as it's definitely more as like an outsider as a hobbyist than as like somebody who's impacted by it on their day-to-day or pays attention to it and also and, and monica and i have ranted about this in the group chat and i'm sure we'll get into this like i think when i was younger i had this i, I was really excited about the idea that one day i would have grown-up money and might be able to buy like <laughs> fancy interesting clothes because like clothes you buy and ready to wear are very boring and then i got like old enough where i could at least begin to aspire well, if i save my money i could buy something like you know super cool and then i'm like i looked around what was actually available and good god it's all so boring i'm just going to go make a flamboyant coat now so i kind of stopped paying attention especially to like american fashion brands katya you bring up an interesting point especially in the sewing community of the idea of the vogue sewing pattern like still the name like carries around this weight as being like oh vogue are the ones making like fashionable patterns versus like the mccall's which is your kind of like halloween costume pattern that you buy at right. joann's right like it still kind of has that same 
connotation, even though it's for the home sewer versus the person who does have the quote unquote, like adult money to be throwing around for the garments that are in the actual pages of Vogue. I think that's a really interesting comparison because especially from the home sewing perspective, like those kinds of patterns have lost a lot of cachet. Even when I first started sewing in, oh God, the late nineties, I remember going through my mom or like my mom's friends, like sewing patterns. And there were lots of Vogue's. And then probably within the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, I think I, I was like really starting to pay attention. It's happening when I was in middle school and high school where indie sewing patterns took over. So like, at least in the sewing sewing communities I run in, because we all run in gangs apparently now. I just think that was just a weird phrase. Like the in, like indie sewing pattern designers have kind of taken the place of, I think that kind of that, like fashion industry branding that used to be like, because I think historically like the home sewing community tended to be more like, oh, this is a way of uh, accessing high fashion when you couldn't afford it. Whereas now it's, no, we're going to support indie brands. And sometimes those things are more interesting. Like when I buy patterns rather than making them myself, I'm usually buying from people who have a deep understanding of fashion history and are making patterns that are not replicas exactly, but are inspired by like different periods of history. I mean, that is a really important like fashion history lesson is that like these patterns did start as this way to replicate and it was sort of all coming from this idea of the French fashion house being the dictators of taste and style and so it was originally sort of like French fashion houses would then sort of even license out their designs to American department stores who then had giant sewing rooms whose whole job was then to follow those patterns to then make those clothes for them to exist either on the rack or as custom garments for buyers. So there is a sense in which, you know, patterns have always been a part of fashion industry. And so to see patterns now being exchanged in a way that's more similar to a 70s subcultural, like sort of grassroots ground up type of movement is, is a really mm -hmm. interesting development. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with both style and style inclusivity and size inclusivity. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is I think I was reading a critique of androgynous fashion and that it ends up just being men's fashion in neutral colors, also sold to women and non-binary people. And the sewing community, like at least pockets of the sewing community are really trying to push against that. But I kind of wonder, since we have two people who actually know better than I do, and I imagine many of our listeners don't know, can you guys explain what a fashion house is? So the idea of a fashion house or a couture house is, is I feel like a, a really important distinction because when we when we talk about fashion and when we talk about luxury fashion, it is sort of its own self-contained industry. So within France, there is actually a designated committee which rules whether or not you are a couture house based on certain criteria that you have to meet. So not everyone is just allowed to call themselves a couture house. This is the Chambre Syndicale in France. And it is based off of a long history. So a lot of these fashion houses were originally family owned. It stems from this line of usually having at some point in time, sort of royal stamp of approval from the royal family because they were commissioned to make garments that are sort of seen as a higher standard of quality and artistry based on construction, material, design, etc. You really sort of see the idea of the luxury 
fashion house as being something that comes about pretty recently within fashion history. And by pretty recently, I mean, sometimes people like to say that the origination is somewhere around Marie Antoinette, but usually it's a little bit later. It's like the mid 19th century. And again, it is these houses that have a very select clientele base that is having their clothing made custom to the wearer. There is still the idea of a fashion show or a runway presentation in which they've designed a collection full of looks and then the very select clientele that were approved to be able to go to these shows can then order made to order for them and it is more of a relationship between a sort of single designer that is the helm of that house and the client and it was a much more personal experience over time that has obviously shifted one because idea of a house is helmed by a designer but say that designer dies they usually have named a successor before their death in order to keep house alive and so then it it basically holds a very distinct brand identity over these other storied family houses so when you say um, successor, do you mean like they will name someone in their family to hold the business? Or do you mean like somebody that they're like, oh, this person shares a design vision? It's, it's both. So sometimes gotcha. it is family oriented where it goes from uh, father to son. Like a really good example would be Cartier or Louis Vuitton originally was one in which it was a family lineage thing. Dior, however, would be an example where you have Christian Dior, you have Mark Bohan for Dior, you have other designers who are not genetically related to Christian Dior who continue on sort of the legacy of the house. And then a lot of those designers sometimes will then branch out and create their own design house later. So for anyone who saw the House of Gucci movie, they made a really big deal of being like, oh, we're going to bring in this like Texas cowboy who's not a member of the design family. And that Texas cowboy is uh, Tom Ford, who now has his own design house. So there is this sort of idea of it having a unique aesthetic and unique legacy and unique historiography behind each of these design houses. Over time, these design houses may have been purchased by someone else, so they're no longer owned by the family. Perhaps all of the family members died. Perhaps they brought on someone who had a radically different design vision for what it was from what it was before to what it is now. And so all of the houses haven't necessarily kept the same vision over time, but you do still see within their marketing materials this really important recall back to the idea of these being sort of storied houses with the legacy and prestige and stamp of approval of the Chambre Syndicale. Right. There's something that makes Dior Dior, no matter who's making it or when they're making it. Exactly. In theory. In theory. And a little bit of what I brought up that has become a little problematic over recent years is a lot of these companies have been purchased by sort of the same multinational conglomerate corporations. So now a lot of luxury fashion, instead of being one family that is able to have a greater artistic control over their product, they're now being run 
much more like traditional corporations where obviously we're not, they're not making their money based off of couture fashion anymore. Like people are not coming in and saying, I need a custom made garment because this wasn't just like first ladies and movie stars who were asking and for custom made garments. This was also like... I don't want to say you're you're run of the mill rich people because that's not really a thing. But the idea of couture <laughs> clients were sort of in the tens of thousands, uh, and that's mm-hmm. not a thing anymore. The idea of a couture garment is now something that you see exclusively for a runway presentation, exclusively for a red carpet, versus it actually being part of a woman's quote unquote everyday wardrobe. Well, I think that's a thing that has shifted, and again, this is sort of like hobbyist perspective. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think part of it is like our relationship to clothing has changed. Like, I think that was one of the things when I was learning how to sew, I found really interesting about vintage sewing patterns, which is kind of like my forte, because they articulated a very different relationship to just like what it meant to buy clothing or make clothing or wear clothing. Because some of these clothes, you invest, like the idea of an investment piece was a much more common thing historically than it is now. Like the idea of saving your money to buy a very nice coat was normal. And so the idea that like, I mean, I remember actually speaking of France, I lived very briefly in France. And I remember the high school teacher I lived with had designer coats, like things that I had never seen in a like normal, to me, normal person's closet because most of them were family heirlooms or things that she had saved up over the course of years to buy these pieces. And they would last forever if you took care of them. And we don't, I don't want to say we don't have that relationship to close anymore, but I think like my I perception mean, is at least there was a time where that was more of a norm, um, at least among people who could afford it than for example, now. I mean, some of it is the literal materials that are being used to make some of these garments are not mm. what they used to be in terms of like, yeah. potentially it's more synthetic fabrics in museum world. There are some fabrics that we refer to as having sort of like inherent vices. What that means is that that is a fabric that is going to deteriorate quickly over time. And there's kind of not a lot you can do about it. We do refer to it as sort of this like, quote unquote, end of life care of a garment where there is no saving it and there is no making it better. There is only a slowing of decay process. And and so some of it is that clothes aren't constructed in the way that they used to be, especially when you talk about couture garments or couture finishing, where seams themselves are literally left with larger seam allowances because it was something that was actually meant to be altered if you needed to in ways that clothes aren't so much anymore. I definitely know that like I have a habit of going into n- nice stores and turning the clothes inside out in a way that makes the sales associates make cranky faces because I'm looking at the seam finishes and I'm like, <laughs> if I if it's not finished well, I won't even look at it. I remember going to some very nice store- stores in Soho and getting glared at because I did that. <laughs> Because some of them were made like, I mean, I'm not a professional seamstress, but some of them were made of like, I, I, like were not, didn't seem like they were well made. And I'm like, I'm not going to spend this kind of money on something that had, doesn't seem like it had a lot of thought behind it. Right. And I think that goes to show exactly to the point that you made about how our relationship to fashion luxury otherwise has shifted over time. Because most people, as you're pointing out, you know, it's like you don't, most people 
don't have that for when you're gopping your check the seams is this hand sewn is this machine sewn are you even able to tell the difference between the two and the construction of things so for the most part when people are going shopping whether it's at a luxury store or not you know you're more shopping for you know is this something that's in your price point is this something that's like part of your style so it definitely has shifted and also for the company you sell in terms of how they make them as well so i have a question there tying what katia was saying to what Daniela was just saying. And actually also Monica, because when you started, you were talking about the, you know, in the olden days, right? Like you're when you're talking about, you know, a one-to-one designer to consumer family ratio or relationship where, you know, I am the queen and I am purchasing this garment that will last forever because like I am purchasing from the designer because the designer is making clothes just for me. What's the size is just what the size, what size I am, right? And then when we're talking about consumer goods, Goods, we're talking about I go to the gap and I get what's on the shelf, you know, and and or on the rack, and that's what it is, or the gap or target or wherever, right? Like it doesn't matter. And I'm gathering purely from from Monica's blog now, but the when you're talking about a world where the old world deteriorated a hundred years ago, right? So now we've had clothing that was that was meant for even high-end fashion is really just a consumer fashion still, right? It's just that it's, you're just paying more for the Versace dress or the coach bag than you otherwise would be, but it's still mass produced. It's not like you can go to Christian Dior and have them just make one one dress for you. Oh, you can, but only if you're oh. very rich. For the most part, people don't do that, right? So what determines what is high fashion in 2022, right? Is, is it just price? Because I, I, certainly I understand runway shows. I understand those clothes are just, you know, that's an art show. That's not like real clothing. That's just clothing that's just, that's a celebration of who the, who the designer is. But what determines what counts as the, you know, as the $100 pair of jeans or the $1,000 pair of jeans? So sometimes it is still this like myth of it being like more luxury because it's handmade. Like a lot of these luxury fashion companies have gotten in trouble recently because there is a lot of, well, this bag, what like this luxury handbag was handmade. And therefore, because a lot of couture finishing on all of these garments used to be handmade, like that is the thing that you are paying more for. And then you realize that sometimes it's a lot of workers who are being like, who are peacemaking something, who are being paid very poorly. And it also creates this really problematic narrative where you're saying that someone who is handmaking a luxury handbag is different than someone who is sewing together a t-shirt, but that t-shirt is not being sewn on its own. Like that, even though it is sewn by a machine, there are still human hands that are pushing through every garment that you put on your body. And, And so there is a little bit of problem with this whole, what is luxury and what is not luxury, because it does tend to erase labor along the supply chain. Well, because what, yeah, because when we use the terms handmade versus not handmade, we're implying that a person isn't actively involved in the making of it. And I think the average person who's never tried to sew something thinks that the fashion industry is far more automated than it actually is. Like when you're buying a $5 t-shirt, it's not because somebody, it's not because that process was automated in the way that for some other consumer goods, that might be the case. 
Like it's because somebody was paid slave wages. It's mm-hmm. the thing that like basically luxury fashion is attempting to be like, oh, it's worth more because a person made it, but it's all being made by a person. By a person. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And I think, I mean, that's always, I used to teach sewing classes and I think that was always like the most eye-opening like experience for people who had never sewn something before is I remember I've had multiple like students basically come up to me and say, I now understand why clothes cost what they do. Like, and it's the same thing. Like I, you know, I've done custom work before and I, I give itemized receipts for like, this is how many hours it took me to make that custom coat. And like people's minds are kind of like when they actually pay attention, their minds are kind of blown because I think they they think that because a T-shirt is an everyday part of their life, it must be easy or a pair of jeans, especially like jeans take a lot of work. And I think when you like when somebody actually starts and I think this is one of the reasons why at least people I know in the sewing community are very like we we pay attention to fashion, like fashion labor globally. And we pay attention to like Mav, I think you probably remember one of my first conference presentation at Carnegie Mellon was about the Bangladesh factory collapsed and part of the reason I knew about that and was studying it is because the entire sewing community was like freaking out because we were like oh my god garment workers like just died en masse because they locked buildings like my first exposure to labor history was through sewing like I knew I learned what the triangle shirtwaist factory fire was because I was reading sewing patterns and not to say that everyone in the sewing community is like that but but like for people I think if you spend enough time in the hobby like you eventually learn a lot about women's labor history, specifically women's labor history, but fashion labor history and garment making history. And like gives you, I mean, I certainly feel like I have a different respect for people who make clothes than I would have if this was not something I did on the regular. Cause like I am someone who sews as a hobby and I know how physically demanding it can be. I cannot imagine doing it for a living. There is also this unfortunate misogynist history behind the idea yeah. of sewing being women's work because when you look at a lot of fashion designers within history, they're more often male than female. And it does come from this place of the seamstress is just the one sort of like churning out the object. And then the designer is more likely to be a man because it's it's closer to technical study. It's closer to math. It's there there is this idea that unfortunately like historically that it's more technical and therefore better suited to be a man's job, which we all know is some bullshit but it's also like part of why we've seen labor erased throughout the telling of fashion history because there's been all of this focus on the designer without ever looking at like the idea of a design house like it's a house it's an atelier full of other people helping to make all of those garments like it it may have helmed from one uh singular idea or vision but the idea that the no one else ever contributed anything for anyone who's ever worked in a creative field you know that that's a complete myth and collaboration is part of the process even for someone whose job is instruction or is cutting or draping because when you don't have someone standing over you micromanaging you are making decisions in regard to the actual construction of the garment that then end up changing the designer's original vision and this goes back to what i think daniela was saying i i guess what, what i'm still struggling with though is I, I get what you guys are saying about the designer's vision right but when you're talking about what makes it fancy and, what, well, what makes it luxury when it's just owned by a corporate conglomerate now. Right. Because so so here's my thought, right? I well 
I understand when Katya is talking about like checking the craftsmanship of the physical item, right? Like you are, if you are going shopping, you are looking to, I want my hard earned money to go to a garment that I feel like is going to last an acceptable amount of time for the, I'm just going to pick the number $100, right? For the $100 that I am spending on this garment or the $10 that I'm spending on this garment. And I presume that if you're buying a $10 garment, you are less picky than you are with the $100 garment. Is that fair, Katia? I mean, like, just I mean, to pick for, two. For point. me, yeah. But like, yeah, like, I also know a lot of people that aren't. Sure, sure. But, but like, but at yeah, some point. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I'm also looking like, but also when I'm turning the seams inside out, I'm usually looking at a garment that is an investment piece that is several hundred dollars. And it's also it's construction, but it's also like design. Like, sure. As, sure. I think, but my point being, it can't just be the handmaidenness of it because, which I think is what Danielle said, that if it's the handmaidenness, if, if it's the extent to which a garment is handmade, that is worth something. But, you know, how much handmaking did this, that went, went into this, that makes it worth, you know, I can see how a, a well-crafted handmade garment might take me from t- 10 or $20 to 100 or $150. But now you're talking about $2,000. Now you're talking about $4,000. I think that's where the design comes in. And this is why I tend not to buy this stuff is because, and and Monica and I have have, have ranted about this in the group chat, is that a lot of high-end fashion now is boring. Like, I would like I am a person that I don't have a ton of disposable income, but I would be willing to save up money and spend money on like design that I thought was interesting because I think fashion is art that you wear. I mean, very much the Miranda place is like fashion is art that you wear. But really, I, I think that and it's also I appreciate craftsmanship because I understand what goes into it. I've bought handmade garments for frankly, stupid quantities of money. But like for me, what goes into it is like, is this something that's unique that I can tell that there was thought put into it and like thought in the construction, was it well made? But it's also thought in the design. Is it something, but I go into a lot of like higher end fashion and obviously I can't, I mean, I can't afford couture, but I go into a lot of like fashion, like higher end brands and I'm like, none of this looks like, yes, it's made out of better materials sometimes, but like none of this looks like, none of this looks interesting. Like I could walk into a thousand stores and find versions of the same thing. There are some rare exceptions, but the majority of like when I go, like when I go these places, I'm just sort of like, Meh. And then when I add the fact that I can make clothes, I'm like, well, I can make stuff that's way more interesting, at least to me, than I can buy. So like, why would I buy it? Right, exactly. Well, that kind of actually exactly goes back to Mab's question of what else aside from all of that makes it luxury. And yes, of course, it's all the things that we've been talking about, but it also goes back to the actual like society value sets that we place on these items, because regardless of whatever your level of knowledge of construction or things like that may be, if you see something that says Louis Vuitton on it, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe you don't buy Louis Vuitton, maybe you never do and you only shop at Target, you know that's considered luxury. If you see sure. like certain brands, Prada, Chanel, you know, like these big names, they're like carried as like luxury, right? Because it's seen as something that's aspirational. So whether the stuff that's currently going on that's being put out season to season, whether it looks good or not, kind of doesn't matter in that sense because the right. second you see the label, as just like an everyday person, you're like, oh, this is expensive. And you're expecting it to be expensive before you even flip over the price tag, right? So regardless whether the materials have changed and now it's like a lot more synthetic and it's less, you know, leather and things like that. It's about this kind of going back to this historical, almost like mytho- mythology that Mon mentioning in the beginning. All of that is tied into the clothes too. 
Yeah. And that's a lot what of what I, I was getting at too, of the idea of the mythology. When you think about the things that are the best sellers for these groups, like for Chanel, it's always the iconic Chanel bag. It's the first bag that she designed. It's the Chanel number no. five. It's the first perfume she marketed. And that's on purpose. Like that is on mm -hmm. purpose through the brand itself continuing to perpetuate the narrative which is this mm -hmm. idea of the history and legacy and significance of chanel within fashion history is the thing that you are purchasing even though you are purchasing a classic version of a chanel bag or a bottle of chanel number no. five that was manufactured this year and mm -hmm. it's that way sort of across the board with all of these luxury fashion brands like there's sort of the idea of the Hermes, like Birkin bag, like a Birkin bag is a bag that's for listeners who don't know, like a cheap one is a car, like a cheap Birkin yeah. bag is like $9,000. I've seen auctions of Birkin bags that are over $100,000. And, mm -hmm. and the idea of the why you are buying the Birkin as opposed to any other Hermes product is sort of because of that history and legacy that makes that the best seller. And she has one, Dior has one, all of them have this thing that is also sort of connected back to the legacy, usually of a person. So whether that yeah. is the designer, whether that was the designer's muse, but the idea of embodying Jackie O or Jane Birkin or Princess Diana, like there is this, I want to be like, or Grace Kelly has, a, has the Kelly bag, which is also in her best bag, you know? Like mm -hmm. it is the want to be that person as well as the association with brand that's important. And I think there's another version of that too. That's I think it's like the 2000s where like the logo bag was like the thing, even if you weren't like somebody who was into fashion, like especially when it, when it came to knockoffs, like everybody wanted to have the Louis Vuitton like logo bag. I personally don't like them. I think they're kind of hideous, <laughs> but it was a thing. It continues to be a thing. But I think to your both of your points, like I think part of the reason that was really popular is some of those bags you were talking about and like some of the iconic fashion, like a Birkin bag, like you like you have to have some knowledge of what it is to recognize what it is. Whereas if you have stuff with plastered with branding in a very ostentatious way, you don't have to have any knowledge of fashion history to have that cachet. But I also think it's really interesting because and this is just at least like my perception. So correct me if this seems not if this seems not on on the mark. But like when I look at because like most major fashion brands have like tiers. They have the couture tier, the very high end like thousand you know the bag that's the the size the you know the price of a car. But I say the size of a car that would be horrifying. Then they have <laughs> things that are more like I would say like ex accessible to other levels of wealth down to the I would say the upper middle class at least, and sometimes the middle class depending on the fashion brand. And at least from what I notice, it seems like the more you go down in the pricing tiers, the more the logos are more ostentatious. So in graduate school, I took a fashion journalism class and we had an instructor who told us about um, Louis Vuitton makes a it's called the like the speedy bag. It's the monogram logo catch all canvas tote bag that everyone has. 
And she was like, this is so... I do not have one. Yeah. I don't have one either, but like, it's very much considered the like, the entry level Louis Vuitton luxury bag. It's sold for, I mean, still over a thousand dollars, but it is less expensive than a lot of the other bags that they make. But it's also sort of has this very utilitarian shape because it is a pretty large tote bag. And the instructor told us, she was like, this is so fucking shitty. But within fashion journalism and within the luxury fashion community, they call that bag the babysitter bag. And what they mean is that people with real money give that bag to the babysitter because it didn't cost that much. And it's basically like a throwaway because it is the entry level price point. Okay, now you're getting to the thing I'm wondering about. So I just because <laughs> this is that's ba- well, that's basically where I'm at. If you're talking about two things that are both from Louis Vuitton, but probably vastly diverse in price, right? There's the $500 bag and the $5,000 bag or whatever, right? Or the $1,000 bag and the $10,000 bag or 100000 It doesn't matter what the upper limit is, long as it's vastly different. And like while you were talking, I used Versace just because it was a brand. And I tossed two Versace dresses in our little chat, right? And they're both little black dresses. They're they're not the same. They're very clearly different dresses because I was only willing to do so much research in the, in the three minutes that you guys were talking. But they're two different dresses, both made by Versace. And one is mm-hmm. has a $375 price tag on it. And the other has a $4,600 price tag on it. And so the but it's still the same brand, right? Neither of them, the Target little black dress, which I also looked at was just $25. And I can see why both of them are different than the $25 dress. But they're there's a big difference between $375 and $4,600, right? Like you are, this is a price factor of more than 10 times. So and that is, seems like a lot. <laughs> that seems a like a pretty excessive. big uh, distinction is, so you actually picked a Versace dress and a Versace <laughs> jeans couture dress. And yes. a lot of brands. In order to make that, in order to make the number, in order to make the numbers that great. I did notice that I did well, that. Yes. So a lot of brands <laughs> sort of have, branding. yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of brands, they have like their main line and then they have a diffusion line that is specifically marketed as an entry level for the mm-hmm. upper middle class. The other thing I want to bring up is Versace is actually owned as of a, the past couple years by Michael Kors. And Michael mm-hmm. Kors is another one that has Michael Kors collection, but most mm-hmm. People, if they own a Michael Kors, they own a Michael by Michael Kors handbag. And then if you bought a Michael Kors handbag at TJ Maxx, you didn't mm-hmm. buy the same Michael by Michael Kors handbag that you bought inside a Michael by Michael Kors store. What you bought was a Michael by Michael Kors handbag that was specifically made for the TJ Maxx market in an entirely mm-hmm. different factory using entirely different materials, especially than the Michael Kors collection, which is another one that sort of has that pretty big price difference where the bags are all somewhere upwards of $1,300 versus mm-hmm. a Michael by Michael Kors, which is a little bit more like $400. And it is because well, they are one, literally using different materials two, literally producing them in different factories in different locations. And three, mm-hmm. doing this on purpose, because they are trying to essentially give you that free sample of Annie Ann's pretzel to make you buy the big one. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's but- also like something to know about outlets too. like even for like department store brands, like something I mean, not quite department store, but like J. Crew has J Crew, but if you go to the J Crew outlets where they tell you like, oh, this is the leftover stuff, but you're getting the same quality. It's not. It's usually not. 
Yeah. It's usually right. made. It's actually it's they're actually branded differently too. It's like what factory by J Crew or something mm-hmm. like that. And most outlets do this now is that they make clothes specifically for the outlet that are lower quality, even if they like initially might look at first pass to be the same. And occasionally you'll find things that filter through there that are actually like like over overproduced or oversold. But honestly, for the most part. And this is true of almost every level of fashion from like the high end to the low end. If something doesn't sell, it's not sent to an outlet. It's destroyed. Mm -hmm. When I worked at Michael Kors, when we received returns that were slightly damaged, instead of sending those to an outlet, because Michael Kors does have an outlet. And I would say about 25% of the things that are in the outlet were things that did not sell in our stores that then were taken to the outlet as overflow. But if it was damaged, we were instructed to literally take a pair of scissors and cut it up because selling something damaged devalues the brand. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that like the idea of damaging it more like doesn't, but it was <laughs> like it was basically right. like, oh, we can't make it sell, unsellable. Can't sell damaged things because then people will think that we are lower quality. Mm-hmm. And like as a reminder to the listener, fashion is one of the most polluting industries on the planet. Second mm-hmm. after oil. Right. <laughs> so. I just, you know, doing the math between those two dresses that I showed you guys and the Target one, right? The cheap Versace is about 13 times more expensive than the Target dress. And then the more expensive Versace was 13 times more expensive than the cheap one. That's significant, right? That's So you're just going like a thousand percent markup (laughs) to where... I'm like, okay, I understand why it's better, but how much better can you be? And at the point in which you are artificially controlling your own, you know, brand scarcity by cutting up your own garments. And at what point are you creating an entire market just as a fiction? Oh, absolutely. And and especially the fact I that think you it's, hit on the crux of the issue. <laughs> when, when it's a multinational conglomerate that has Pac-Man eaten up all of the other companies. There's not really anyone to ever be like, oh, well, this should lower the prices. There isn't market competition the way that there kind of should be. And obviously, there's it's not a monopoly because there are multiple of these multinational corporate conglomerations. But they've all decided that it's in their best interest to keep the prices where they are, if not raise them. Mm -hmm. And they're all existing at this same level and have all, whether or not these brands were originally originally sold at the same price or not is irrelevant because now they are all being sold at the same price as if they are all the same thing because like spoiler they kind of are because they're all owned by the same umbrella which is controlling all of it so there was recently a pretty big controversy where Janelle decided that they were gonna hike up the price of all of their bags by like 600% so a Chanel classic handbag is something that's going to run you somewhere originally between four and six thousand dollars and now they are aiming for Hermes level of prices with all of their price hikes hacks on all of their bags but of course there's this huge thing where it, it didn't happen gradually they were just like nope 600 percent more 
out of nowhere. And <laughs> it made consumers really upset because it, it's exactly what you're talking about of now everyone is like, what is different? What am I buying? Because now you have sort of exposed the mythology of it all, which just shows that ice is based off of this idea of mythology, or as Daniela was saying, this idea that you want people to know that you have something that's expensive, rather mm -hmm. than it necessarily being reflected in the product itself. And people are really upset because of that. It wasn't like a, ooh, now I look more expensive because now I own a Chanel bag and now Chanel is it's fancy. It was a like, damn it, now when I buy a Chanel bag, it's going to cost a lot more for no right. reason. And so, also, if everyone knows that if, like you were saying, like they broke the fiction, there's a certain point where it's, oh, if, if somebody knows that I spent that stupid amount of money after they did this arbitrary thing and I'm not actually getting from it, I think there's also a level of like anxiety that's, oh, is someone going to think I'm an idiot? <laughs> Because well, like, also, like, on top of the hiking of the price point, I'm pretty sure they also had like recently announced that Chanel was also limiting how men could also buy. Huh. It was that. And then this is also on top of my favorite scandal of the holiday season, which Daniela and I definitely texted about, which was the Chanel advent calendar. Which oh my God, I heard <laughs> my goodness, it was so bad. <laughs> Um, so for listeners oh, who aren't aware of the Chanel advent calendar, for the low price of $800. Of how much? $800. You could receive a Chanel logo advent calendar that was full of fun things like Nothing. stickers, <laughs> an empty tiny dust bag, and literal like pieces of string that they labeled bracelets and it, it was literally like basically like the pre the free perfume sample that you get i was at the cosmetic well, I, was gonna say, I think they had the exact same makeup and like perfume samples you get at sephora for free yes Mm -hmm. For $800, like it was basically $800 worth of either garbage or things that you can get in other places literally for free. It was like, <laughs> well, that's what advent calendars are, though. Advent calendars are never cool stuff. Like, either if you have, Except there are advent calendars that do have cool stuff. Like, oh, that was sure, the thing. But like your, people but your were classic posting, advent card. Yeah, right. But I'm people were posting like stupid garbage. pictures of the Chanel advent calendar. I mean, it basically became its own meme where people were posting pictures of the Chanel garbage they were getting on a given day next to literally any other advent calendar and I'm like at least I got you know a chocolate <laughs> or like something that wasn't like depressed like actually depressing and angry like also there's not that many advent calendars that cost eight hundred dollars no, well, and that's kind of what I was getting at when I, with my question about the about the pricing like like you're Okay, so I'll compare it to an industry that I, I do know a little something about. I'll go to the comics industry, but of the 90s, right? We did this thing in the 90s where we had this great idea of we are going to manufacture collector's items, which is to say there were the death of Superman comic book. There was a point where Superman got killed. And in order to, and this is a collector's item comic. So what we're doing is we're selling it to you in a sealed bag. Now, don't open the bag because if you do, now it's no longer 
longer a collector's item. What we're like doing is we're selling babies. you. Huh? It's like what they did with Beanie Babies. Yes, except for Beanie Babies, you could still look at. This is a sealed, opaque <laughs> bag. And you so, have like, to buy a second <laughs> one to be able to, to even to, read it. Is that what you're right. saying? That's what I'm getting at because this is a comic, right? And so, and like, contaminated the, it with your eyeballs. Right. The, the, right. The one thing that the comic does that it's there for is it's, it is to be read. Oh, so wow. we are taking away your ability to read it by sealing it in a bag, right? So like the same thing. And so, yeah, sure, you could read it, but it really wasn't any good. And it really wasn't worth anything because we made or we I, I mean, I, it wasn't my decision, but they printed, you know, 10 million copies. So like it's not actually worth anything. It's just the agreement that, no, the one that's worth stuff is the one that's sealed that no one has ever touched that like you, you know, you've only looked at from across the room. That is its value because I say so. And it, it failed horribly. Like eventually this killed the comic industry and there was a massive collapse by the end of the 90s because I said the death of Superman, but the, we we like comic, the comics industry was doing this bullshit every other week, like with various people. And they just, there were just these constant collector's items that were like meaningless with no quality control. And there was nothing in them. They were essentially empty advent calendars in a way, right? They're like, oh, well, I'm sealing this one with a baseball card. This one comes with, and it was, and they started the, the collector's items that came sealed in the bag started to become like garbage seriously it was a you know we're packaging this with a, a baseball card costs nothing when you're already printing a comic book right like it's far less paper there's no purpose <laughs> to this whatsoever <laughs> like literally everything about it was stupid that's and then hard. but it was entirely manufactured so like that's what i'm wondering like chanel is you know they're selling the idea of like your well, chanel advent calendar you is only worth with chanel you're like you're not right. buying it because you want a thing you're bu like but what I'm saying is once you open the once you open the door but once you open the doors well, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't have, You're right? Like, the there's thing, something I think... in the advent calendar. Like, the reason that this is oh. a problem is because people aren't... Like, this is another one where the mythology and the fiction of it is broken, right? Because mm -hmm. if what really mattered was to own Chanel things, it wouldn't matter that it was just stickers in there. Like, the, re right. the reason That's... that people are upset is because there is a limit to the idea of, like, when you pay for something, you do expect to get something else. And and so essentially like the contract between the company and the consumer and expectations was broken in some way. Right. And I think especially for that advent calendar, I, I think I saw a lot of the posts that I saw were about people who were like, not necessarily actual influencers, but like perhaps thought of themselves as mm -hmm. and the, I, part of what I think they were thinking that they were paying for was spectacle. Like they thought they were like, cause part clearly part of it, but part of the shtick was you bought this like luxury advent calendar. You were mm -hmm. going to post about it every day on your Instagram or your TikTok or whatever platform you have. And as a way to Ooh, look how fancy I am or whatever, you know, message you're trying to get across. And because it was so like, so that you're paying for the idea that like this advent calendar is luxurious and in some way more exclusive or better than other advent calendars. So when you get pieces of string and stickers, right. that is objectively worse than like the Harry and David's chocolate calendar, you can't do that. Right. No, I, yeah, that I see. So if you were supposed to actually open the advent calendar, then, you know, then you've lost. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm wondering... <laughs> I don't know that anyone was approaching it as a collector's item as such okay. that I'm aware of. I mean, I think well, some of it was uh, the reason it's such a problem is $800 in the grand scheme of Chanel is not a lot to spend to mm -hmm. receive yeah. Chanel. And usually the me. thing about an... <laughs> 
usually the thing about an advent calendar is you are basically hoping that you are receiving like the baker's dozen in terms of you hope that there's a little value for your money or a free something in there. And so the problem is that like, one, it is a lot of aspirational influencers, but it's also a lot of people where like $800 was a lot for them to spend. And like therein lies the problem of all of the people who essentially got scammed rather than the people who can afford have Chanel advent calendars. Well, that was the thing is like, I think a lot of people that bought that advent calendars, that calendar were people who like no other Chanel product is accessible for them. Yeah, right. I think especially like I I can make money like selling NFTs of my Chanel advent calendar just for the complete (laughs) worthlessness of (laughs) of ideas. I feel like someone's tried it somewhere. But, But I think but I think that's the thing also like with I mean, I think about there are things of those designer brands that are accessible, but they don't have the brand cachet. So for example, like I forget it was like years ago, but like the YSL lipsticks mm-hmm. were like a mm-hmm. thing several years ago. And and because I mean, for lipsticks, they are not cheap. I think at the time they were probably like $40 or something like that. Like they're like, oh, dis- like <laughs> high end <laughs> lipstick is not cheap. Okay. And that's the thing is they're not even good lipstick. I think we've just yeah. learned that there's a future opinion. episode in which we ask Mav, how much do you think it costs to be I'm a lady? <laughs> I am, I am, I am a, I, I am an enthusiast of many vintage things. I have reproduction lipstick shades from various decades yeah. because I am a nerd. Some of them are actually Marvel branded because they make. Because oh my god, when they did the oh god, Agent what, Carter red, Agent yes, Carter, they made a lipstick brand and it's reproduction mm-hmm. shades from the 1940s, and I own all of them. Anyway, oh, well, <laughs> well, so it's it's not that I don't know. So this is where I kind of with the fashion, right? And in all of this, everything that I know is more about the visuals of it, right? I could give a shit about mm-hmm. the brand name because because if I've bought, so I'm looking in in my studio. I'm standing across from the closet where I have what I call the model closet in my studio, which is a bunch of clothes that I bought for when I was doing photography, and there are various glamorous dresses that were bought on the cheap for all of them because they don't matter, right? Like the idea is I don't know who's going to wear this. I don't know when they're going to wear it. I don't know what they're going to wear it for. So there's probably half a dozen little black dresses, size two through 12 in that. There's actually, it's probably more for little black dresses, probably several, but there's three wedding dresses in there. There are various costumes. There's just a bunch of, it's just a big closet that I have in this room that just has a bunch of different outfits. And they're in various sizes because I don't know who's going to wear them. And it doesn't matter. I just need to make it look good enough for the picture, right? So I'm holding things together with safety pens all the time because it really doesn't matter. I'm a good photographer. I can edit all that out. The idea is to make you look like a model and to make you look, whether you're an actual model or whether you're somebody who hired me to make, you know, to take your senior photos, which I've done both of, right? Or to do like just your boudoir photos that you're taking for your boyfriend for Valentine's Day or whatever, right? That's a thing that you do. And so the idea of looking expensive is the important thing, even if I only spent 10 bucks on the actual dress, right? Looking expensive is what I'm going for far more so than the label that no one can see in the photo. So that's why it's weird. All of this is weird to me because because in the picture, you can't see the label. You only know for sure because it's, you know, in the context of this is from, you know, the Chanel catalog. So I presume it's there, you know, they would not have done someone else's dress. Right? I, mean, right? I think like, that I... goes back to the idea, though, of there's like an in-group and an out-group. Because if mm-hmm. you're somebody who knows what a Birkin bag is, yes, like 
it looks like you know the style that you're looking for. Yes, like I get it. But, it, but if it's a really good knockoff. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I was going to say, I, I mean, I think this is a great spot to talk about knockoffs because there are knockoffs yeah. of things that have logos on them. And there are also knockoffs of things that don't have logos on them. And what I mean is obviously when you see a bag on the street that kind of looks like Louis Vuitton, but is being sold by someone not in a store, this you're pretty Louis sure Vuitton that's, yeah, that's Louis Vuitton, <laughs> but a, a store like Zara and like H&M right. that is very fast fashion, very much exists to create what is almost a knockoff because it is very similar silhouettes or shapes or trends that are being done by specifically the luxury fashion industry at that fast fashion price point. And I just, I want to stress, maybe if people don't come away with anything else other than this, how harmful knockoffs are. One, knockoffs of luxury goods like Mr. Lewis Vuitton is the number one funder <laughs> of terrorism in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that is Cute. If you think about the fact that your fake Chanel bag is funding terrorism, would you buy a Chanel bag? Probably not. If you think about the implications of I know buying some something. Who, nah. <laughs> I know some people where I wonder, but okay. But, if, <laughs> but also if you think about the implications of buying something from H&M, it looks like it came off the runway. You're also mm -hmm. contributing to that huge like problem of environmental decay that is fast fashion. And so... And, and I know that we're having not that well spent. We are having like, a talk that is like about accessibility to like there are people who cannot afford to shop luxury fashion. There are people who cannot afford to shop a made fashion. There are people who can only afford to shop fast fashion. And those are not the people that I am talking to mm -hmm. because that is like nobody is shaming you for the money that you do have. It is the people who can afford to buy more or mm -hmm. cannot afford and are choosing a, a knockoff instead of something that fits within their price point that is inherently very problematic to me. Hmm. And I think the other thing to remember is like, if you are somebody who can afford not to have fast fashion, like it's not just every point that Monica just said. It's also like when you're buying fast fashion, you are generally speaking, buying something that will fall apart. If you can afford to do so, invest in something that's well-made, you're probably better off in the long run. And it sucks because a lot of, as we're, you were saying, like a lot of those things aren't accessible. And it's one of the things where I had, I have been shopping with friends and they will ask me if they should buy something based on construction. Because if you know how clothes are made, you can find things that are made at more accessible price points that are well-made. It does happen. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that pisses me off, I think, about this the most is like I have been to very expensive stores. And the reason I do the thing where I turn the clothes inside out is I've seen like very expensive clothes that are made like garbage and mm -hmm. will fall apart as fast as something is made at Forever 21. I and wanna, that's the part that really ticks me off. I want to bring up the other side of the coin, too, which is also when you find things that are really well made at a cheap price point. For example, every time crochet comes into fashion. Crochet oh cannot be made by a machine. Knitting can mm -hmm. be made by a knitting machine. Crochet some knitting. has to be some knitting. Crochet has to be made by a person. So if you bought mm -hmm. crochet at Target, think about how long it would take you to crochet a scarf or a sweater or a hat. It took that other person that same amount and you're still buying it for $20. So yeah. it is hard because it is this rarity of being like, wow, I own something that's hand crocheted and I only paid $20. 
So there are those two sides of the coins yeah. too, where it becomes really important to know about instruction as well in order to be able to be this informed consumer. And I think it like comes down to, I mean, this is the thing where it's like any clothes that I don't make at this point, I buy secondhand, like with very few exceptions. Like if I can find it secondhand, I will buy it secondhand because at that point I'm like, I'm at least like minimizing the amount of all of these problems that I can. It's still not a perfect system because there's issues with second best secondhand market too, but it's at least using what already exists. And you can also get better made stuff that already exists. Basically, whatever has happened in terms of labor in the creation of that garment, good or bad, has happened mm -hmm. for better well, or worse. You're... We could do an entire... And now I'm making sure it doesn't... Huh? Sorry. I was going to say, we no, could do an entire episode also on all of the evils of the secondhand market, too, which is right. also kind well, of the problem. Well, the that just... well it's a, <laughs> you know, on, on, beh on behalf of Hannah, it's a good place problem, right? It's a where things happen with the it's impossible to do a zero sum, sum game, yes. have, you know, have positive karma points in this universe because of the thing that Monica, I mean, you glossed over it because it wasn't your point, but we've probably got a whole nother episode on the necessity of, um, well, you were talking about with fashion, but fast consumer goods, period, right? Like the necessity right. of this is, uh, I mean, I'm not poor, but I'm not rich. I, I say I'm poor because I'm a grad student, right? And, and, and academic, and but I'm not as poor as I was growing up. But even still, I buy lots of my clothes at Target. Uh, frankly, these are some really comfortable jeans that I have on and, and they're good right. enough. And that's, and that's kind of like the, for what I need them for, it's just sort of a necessity versus how much money I have to spend on my disposable pants. Right. That's. Yeah. And while we're having this conversation, I also want to note, I mean, I talked about, I make my clothes where I can, when I can, that's not necessarily a better solution either. There's a whole nother episode on all of these issues with textiles. Yeah. <laughs> textile, well, it's textile manufacturing, but also, I mean, this is the, one of the issues with making your clothes by hand yourself. There are certain things like the labor issue you can get around, but the environmental impact is still there. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's actually worse because your access to any clothing manufacturing place that's paying attention is trying to use every scrap of material that they can. Right. I mean, not necessarily. Your, exact, your like, carbon have, footprint is much more wasteful as for, as a garments by Katya for Katya are going yeah. to necessarily just waste more, you know, more mate raw material than Target. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's better access. There's better access now than there used to be to like textile recycling for people who make clothes by hand. But it's still not great. And I remember, you know, I, I participate in a lot of like fabric swaps and things like that. And, you know, I, but it's still not great. It's not perfect. There is no ethical consumerism under capitalism. I don't know what to tell Snow you. Snow weavers off nothing. <laughs> <laughs> As we do. <laughs> I do want a future episode, though, yeah. where we like recap like fashion takes from one of the galas or something, because I always find that entire phenomenon fascinating and kind of that's my pca talk this year perfect okay. <laughs> let's have an episode on it because people keep assuming that i love things like the met gala and i'm like i don't know because all i see when i look at some of those gowns like i do appreciate it of like i enjoy seeing people dressed in interesting things but also part of me dies inside every time i look at it but that's a different episode well on that <laughs> cheery note <laughs> Whee!
Daniela, thank you for joining us. <laughs> any final words? Any anything you want to? Just echoing okay. that you know, <laughs> luxury fashion as it's been echoed before. It is a spectacle. It is weird. It is expensive. It is also beautiful. It's also <laughs> it's a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. We were. I mean, well, we. I didn't talk much. You guys were, you know, kind of hard on it. But I, I don't want people to think that you know we hate them. Just you know, enjoy what you enjoy. Just think about stuff like everything we talk about on the show. Can people exactly. follow you online or anything like that? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Danny Dog. And that will be linked in the show notes, of course. And Katya. You can technically find me on Instagram at Just That Nerd Kid. And you can technically find me on Twitter at Katya Gorecki. Will I enter the land of the living as far as the internet is concerned? Probably, <laughs> eventually. Also, if you are somebody who is interested in secondhand stuff, I will say there's a lots of places online where secondhand clothing is more accessible. Things like ThreadUp, which I recommend. There's still a slew of problems with it. But if it's something you need access to because you need access to, to inexpensive clothing, it's sometimes better than nothing. And Monica Marvelous. You know, I want to plug something a little bit different this week. So... February 11th, which will be in the past when this episode airs, I have a movie premiering. My husband Yay. and I made a movie during quarantine. I was the costume designer. It is called Those Who Walk Away. It stars Boo Boo Stewart from uh, Twilight and The Descendants. It is a horror movie about a date gone wrong. You can find it on video on demand platforms or it will be playing in theaters for a limited engagement in L.A., New York, Detroit, Minneapolis and Chicago. So if you're in one of those cities, you can check it out in person. Otherwise, you can rent or buy it online. And Which you totally should. <laughs> it was a very, very fun party. Well, yes, but I won't go because it's a, I mean, you're my friend, but it's a horror movie and I'm a little scaredy cat. So I have a virtual. Watch party, which means you can yeah. be on your couch and be all cozy. Oh, same. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you just, it's it will be linked in the show notes, of course. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can find out what we're talking about next week. And I'm not sure what that is. You know, go on the blog and find out. You can leave us comments on this show or any other show. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you're interested in. You can suggest future topics or, you know, suggest yourself as a guest. You can, if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, helps other people find the show, and we will appreciate it. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank Daniela once again for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.